song is called Acid and Tapping.
superior and another inferior, finally and permanently discredited and abandoned. The philosophy which owed one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited. Necessary. We know we shall. Win. 
will not know peace. And we Africans will fight, we find it necessary. We know we shall win, you know. We are confident in, in the victory. Come on, man.
Okay, that was uh, our opening set, listening to Labor and Love Radio uh, here at Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street in San Francisco, in the very heart of the Mission District, El Mero Mero. Morning to you all. We've got a lot of things to cover today. A lot of news. Most labor news. Other news that depends on labor news. Labor is an invisible part of the world. Distracted. Look at some of our credos. Go by our George Sons, woman who had to take a man's name in order to publish a book. Humanity is outraged in me and with me. Not dissimulate, try to forget that indignation. Passion. Stay mad. labor and love where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And the reason we need unions is because people often don't do the right thing. You're always running run into people who say, "Oh, I'm not political. I don't. Uh, I'm not into politics." This is what you should tell them. Well, you're not into that into politics, huh? Your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, to raise your rent and deny you coverage every minute. This is from Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor under Clinton. This is your reminder that the richest 1% own half of the stock market. 
And the richest 10% own almost all of it, 92%. So when Trump or somebody brags about the stock market, they're not talking about the economy that 90% of Americans inhabit. Okay, those are our credos. Those are some of the things we believe in on this show. Hope you believe in them too. We've got quite a show planned for you today, but let's go back over our opening set. The last one we heard was... Aloha Oi, reaching out to our brothers and sisters in Hawaii, especially the native Hawaiians who have had their land ripped off from them. America's paradise. Americans go to vacation. Something happened. Something was unprepared for any eventuality. Is that a reflection of climate change? Who knows? Investigations, of course, will be going on, but at this moment, people are homeless. 80 people have died. So we are, our hearts go out to the people in Hawaii. For that, we had... Bob Marley, Bob Marley and his version of a song that he wrote of war, song we featured last week in our section about Sinead O'Connor, until all these beliefs, all these racial systems, all this prejudice, all this upper-class exploitation of working people, until that's over, there will be war. War in the East, war in the West. War. And before that, we had the wait. This week, we lost immortal, an immortal guitar player named Robbie Robertson. More about him a little later. One of the mainstays of several of Bob Dylan's bands, songwriter, guitar genius, in his own right. So we'll be talking a little more about him. All right, let's see what else we got. Hollywood Writers Union Mulls Proposal from Studios. Iron Workers Loud Loud Contract Campaign Gets the Goods. Tentative argument, tentative agreement, I shouldn't say. The argument's not tentative at all. Uh, Teamsters and UPS. We'll look, take apart that agreement and look at it. Kid King Tech 
listening to a show on radio. I heard about a rapper named King Tech who at one time was a premier break dancer in the Bay Area. And uh, his song is called Time for Peace. Who was Jovita Ivar? an American journalist, teacher, and civil rights worker who championed the cause of Mexican-Americans. We'll tell her story. Aloha oi, which we heard. Situation room. Is it possible could Trump be a nominee from the prison cell? Who knows? Great Native American Jim Pepper, Richitaito, Comanche tribe, and one of the premier jazz saxophonists of his time. I have a little biography of him as well. And Israel, oh, can I get this name right? Kamakawigne Aloy. YouTube singing his smash worldwide hit of Over the Rainbow. Hiroshima. Okay. So that's a little review. I mean, Loaded up today, see how much of it we can cover. I also want to play uh, not play. I also want to contact our reporters, Vita and Yemen, and talk to them about a project. Hollister area. I visited Hollister. Got in touch with many friends. As we say in our section, greed never sleeps. Greed never sleeps. What are they trying to do in Hollister? Okay, let's get started. You're listening to Labor and Love on Mutiny Radio. And our first feature, Hollywood Writers Union mulls proposal from studios that would end the strike. And this is The Guardian. Hollywood TV and film writers represented by the Writers Guild of America evaluating a counterproposal from studios that would end their ongoing strike of more than 100 days, marking a substantial step forward in negotiations. Sometimes 
one of the spokesmen said, more progress can be made in negotiations when they are conducted without a blow-by-blow -blow of description moves on each side. And subsequent pu public dissection of the meaning of the moves. That will be our approach, at least for the time being, until there is something of significance to report. In other words, they don't want to have to come out every day and report on what's going on back and forth. Reports noted that initial talks did not go well. August 4th was the first talks over 11, since over 11,000 writers went on strike. The August 11th meeting turned out to be more productive. TV and film writers are calling for movements to improvements to residuals and pay as the shift to streaming services has been used by the industry to underpay writers and for regulation of how artificial intelligence is used by the industry. And as we mentioned last week, this is a stand for all workers. The issue here is not just AI in, in the, the entertainment industry. This is about automation for all workers. What's going to happen when a machine or a robot or an artificial intelligence takes over your job and your boss doesn't care because the machines can do it without problem. They don't go on strike. They don't want vacations. They don't want health plans. They don't complain about their shifts. I'm paraphrasing a man who was assigned uh, or who was originally named by Donald Trump to be his Secretary of Labor. There was such a furor, though, that he withdrew the name. Okay, so let's keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on that. The, the big media is more interested in Trump's latest court case, of, whom there, of which there are many. U.S. Teamsters to vote on contract that ends driver tears, lifts part-time pay. Take a look at that. So the Teamsters, as we speak now, just a week to go before the strike deadline, UPS and Teamsters announced a tentative agreement. This was on July 25th, canceling the strike that was scheduled for August 1st. It is clear that their strike threat paid off in a big way to the tune of 13 $30 billion. Union's calculation of how much more UPS is spending on this contract than on the last one. 
Vinnie Perone, local 804, Teamsters 804, said, contract is going to show the Amazons and the Walmarts and the Targets that the Teamsters are here. There's a shift. And they should be very careful and start driving up their wages. Among the winds that will reverberate around the labor movement is the elimination of lower-paid second tier of drivers. Dreaded two-tier system that so many unions have been forced to accept. Upon ratification, all second tier drivers will be immediately classified into the first tier. Regular package drivers. It's a good precedent for the auto workers as well, which just kicked off bargaining with the big three automakers in the auto parts eliminating tiers is a popular demand. Major sticking point in the final weeks of UPS bargaining was the low pay of part-timers. The majority of the workforce who do the bulk of the loading, unloading, and sorting inside warehouses. Others, too, full-time jobs, 7,500 new full-time jobs, combining 15,000 part-time ones. No driver facing cameras, no audio or video recording them. Okay, so it looks like the Teamsters are on their way, taking the lead in the labor movement. Okay, so is it possible that Donald Trump could get to be a nominee? Donald Trump's campaign is in trouble, but somehow still crushing. How is that possible? Okay, this is Francesca Fiorentini, and the question is, could Donald Trump still be the nominee from the prison cell? Let's take a look. Um, but first, you have to know that Trump's PAC, Save America, um, it started the year off with like $105 million. Now it has $4 million left. Why? Because all of the money is going to Trump's legal fees. And right now, we're currently waiting for Jack Smith to indict Trump for a third time, um, this time related to the um, you know peaceful tourist um tour of the capital whatever you know like on january 6th um so at any moment now he's gonna announce those charges again related to that um very calm and orderly um sightseeing adventure where just the people like to go through the windows instead of the doors you know sometimes people like to do things different and, and that's important to remember um no judgment i'm not kink shaming people who want to break windows and go through them um look some, some sometimes people need to just like, you know, attempt to subvert a democracy and trample someone to death who's literally wearing a Don't Tread, tread on Me t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. Back the blue while I stab the blue in the back. Yeah. Um, 
So that's coming down the pike, and their money troubles are getting real bad. And yet, NATO, new polling in, Trump's just trouncing the opposition. So all other Republican candidates, DeSantis, Pence, Scott, Haley, Ramaswamy, and Christie, of course, uh, just... I mean, Pence, Scott, Haley, Ramaswamy are between three and two points. Wait, hang on. Who the fuck is Ramaswamy? I missed uh, this he's, He is, I don't know much about him, but he's like a, you know, a, another like model minority South Asian libertarian dude. Okay, but man, that's got to hurt. Chris Christie coming in behind Ramaswamy. Chris Christie, who actually ran for president and was a governor, is pulling up the rear so Ouch. he's from bio yeah that sucks but he's a biotech dude he uh is worth 630 million dollars or something like this uh vivek ramaswamy is his name um but yeah so here we okay. have it pence very less and desantis 17 points to donald trump's 54 percent of in terms of how many republicans would vote would likely vote for him if the presidential nominee were held today, and this is according to a New York Times Siena College poll, which candidate would you be most likely to vote for? 54% says Trump, 17% says DeSantis. Oh, da, da, boy, da, boy. Now, who's who wants Trump? Everybody. Everybody who is racist. Um, every single demographic group and region and every ideological wing of the party, as the survey found, Republican voters waived concerns about um, Republican voters waved away concerns about his escalating legal jeopardy. He led by wide margins among men and women, younger and older voters, moderates and conservatives, those who went to college and those who didn't in cities, suburb, suburbs, and rural areas. We won with young. We won with old. We won with highly educated. We won with poorly educated. I love the poorly educated. It's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, I mean, it It seems like when Trump several years ago said that he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue without losing any support, he may have underestimated his level of support. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this time he's going to be like, I could mow down all of you right now, every single one of you. I could yes, bungle, yes. bungle the response to a pandemic so that a million and a half Americans die. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That's not as exciting as him being like, I could behead your child right here on stage. But yeah, he definitely has blood on his hands. I mean, he should just, he should claim that, honestly. Um, yeah. And if you just take out everybody else, one-on-one, -on -one, DeSantis got a, if he's in a hypothetical one-on-one -on -one race, he would still lose by a two-to-one margin, 62% to 31%, the poll found. Um, and... Of course, as we mentioned, it doesn't matter that Trump is going to be indicted for a third time. Um, he still would receive a 22%. Uh, he still receives 22% among voters who believe he has committed serious federal crimes. So 22% 20, who, who believe he is... I mean, I guess that's not terrible. But even of the people who believe that he's committed serious federal crimes, over 20% say, yeah, I'd vote for him. A greater... Okay, that was our Bituation Room and uh, Francesca Fiorentini talking about uh, people who still want Trump no matter what he does.
somehow, no matter what happens, 30% of the electorate in this country, no matter what the man does, they still want him. Okay, let's play some music. Come back and talk about Jorita Hidalgo. Playboy hero. favorite Robbie Robertson Dylan for a long time this was one of the theme songs of this show in its time it was so original still nothing quite like it up the medicine i'm on a pavement thinking about the government the man in a trench coat badge out laid off says he's got a bad cough wants to get it paid off look out kid it's something you did god knows when but you're doing it again you better duck down the alleyway looking for a new friend the man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen wants 11 dollar bills you only got 10 
this format and then I'll ask why in a way that is clever can't you and I come together and live in harmony the final conclusion I'm talking about peace is the sole solution but we can't count on humanity I see men today are on the brink of insanity the problems we face we need to strengthen the mind the hungry the homeless black on black crime equal rights let's fight the injustice a world that's still filled with prejudice it's negative brothers who just don't realize we won't overcome unless we unify wisdom must release ignorance must cease listen when i tell you brothers it's time for peace
Some folks say that love is a luxury, but I'm afraid I don't agree. What's good enough for Woolworth heirs and debutantes and millionaires and kings and queens and people such as Edward Windsor and his duchess is good enough for me. I buy my things at Woolworths, no charge account at Saxes. I never have to juggle reports of income taxes that may be so, but why should I deny myself a try at love? Don't look for me on Broadway, dressed up in tails and high hats. The Czech girls at Morocco would turn away at my hat. That may be so, but still I've got a right to have the thrill of Don't RSVP when high society invites me to a dance. Working in a shop all day don't give much time to play with debutantes, fat chance. I haven't got an income that G-men care to question when market prices tumble. I don't get indigestion that may be true of me, but still I've got the nerve to be in love with you. Myself a try at love. I haven't got a wardrobe, no gowns and rings that glisten, no penthouse on the river. I've just a hall to kiss in that may be so, but still I've got the crust to want the thrill of love. I prefer to keep away from Newport and the gay society affairs. Sewing underwear all day don't give much time to play with millionaires. Who Designs the clothes I wear. I fight for them in markdowns at Klein's on Union Square. That may be true of me, but still I've got the nerve to be in love with you. I've got no soup and fish or great big yacht. No prince ever was my beau. A cutie from a show I haven't got. So what? So what? 
Our economic standing won't need investigation. We know that we're included in one third of a nation. It's very plain to see, but still I've got the nerve to be in love with you. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the walls. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the walls. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. When they arrive, they say they can't interfere with domestic affairs. Between a man and his wife, as they walk out the door, the tears well up in her eyes. Last night I heard the screaming, then a silence that chilled my soul. Prayed that I was dreaming when I saw the ambulance in the road. And the policeman said, I'm here to keep the peace. The crowd dispersed. I think we all could use. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the walls. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. The stars tonight, like never before, to see such beauty on eve of war. I think of the children who'll awake to bombs outside their But stakes are human. 
Right, that's uh, Jolie Rickman, peace-loving nation. Before that, we played a shorter one, The Wall, Stacy <coughs> Tracy Chapman, singing about domestic abuse, often carried out behind the wall, people acting like everything's normal. I've got the nerve to fall in love with you from a labor-produced musical called Pins and Needles, first produced in the late 30s, had a, had a new presentation in the 50s, and, and recently as well by the uh, International Lady Gar Ladies' Garments Workers' Union. King Tech before that. King Tech with Time for Peace, reflecting the chaos that people are surrounded with and a way out of it. And before that, Subterranean Homesick Blues, one of uh, Bob Dylan's early hits. Not sure if Robbie Robertson played on it or not. But uh, I call it proto-rap. Dylan somehow figured out that rap was coming. Kind of like white rap. What you would call it. Okay, the 11 o'clock hour is here. And we're waiting for a phone call from our... Uh, Reporters in the field. Maybe they'll call. I want to talk 
after the break, want to talk about Robbie Robertson and about another Native American musician named Jim Pepper. And we've still got Labor History in Two, Ovita Ivar, Wikipedia. Play the Jovita Ivar piece first. American, Native Mexican American activist and journalist. A woman who stood up to the Texas Rangers and the Klan. Hardcore white supremacist. Texas. San Antonio, Texas. Don't want that now, do we? Biddy biddy bum bum. Don't want Google Chrome. They're asking a question. Here we go. She saw no conflict between being a journalist and an educator and a feminist. She was always on the front lines of change. In 1914, Laredo, Texas, 29-year-old journalist Jovita Idar worked for the Spanish-language newspaper El Progreso when it published an editorial criticizing U.S. military intervention in the Mexican Revolution. And for that, the Texas governor ordered the Texas Rangers to destroy El Progreso. They were a police force meant to protect the Anglo-Texan economic and political elites who would shoot first and ask questions later. But when they arrived, they found Jovita Idar standing proudly there, and she was not about to let them infringe upon their First Amendment rights as a free press. The Rangers said, please step aside. And I said, no, I'm standing here, and you cannot come in because it's against the law. A Mexican-American, Spanish-speaking, bilingual, brown woman stood up to the Texas Rangers at a time when they were committing terrible crimes against people of color and specifically ethnic Mexicans. Idar stood her ground and the Rangers left. But as her brother, Aquilino, later described, they returned early the next morning. They had hammers and uh, sledgehammers and they broke the press. They wrecked everything. 
Jovita Idar was born in Laredo in 1885, 40 years after Texas became a state. This territory that becomes the U.S. Southwest was actually part of Mexico. You have the U.S.-Mexico War in the 1840s, which Mexico loses, and they have to give up about half of their sovereign territory to the United States. Territory we now know as Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming. So Texas, or Texas, was part of that Spanish-Mexican world. But regardless of how long Mexican-American families had been in the United States, they were often seen as foreigners in their own land. One of eight children, Idar grew up in an educated middle-class family with a strong sense of social justice. Her father was egalitarian in terms of women's rights. He believed that women had a right to have a political voice, and he was very proud of Jovitaidar, proud of all of her knowledge, all of her education, and her daring. After attending Methodist schools, Idar became a teacher in 1903. Ethnic Mexican children had no choice but to attend these schools that were second-rate in every way. The buildings were falling apart, they didn't have school supplies, and the history that they were learning taught them Mexicans were the bad guys, and David Crockett and other Anglo-Americans were the good guys. Jovita Idar quickly grew frustrated with the lack of resources and support. Mexican children in Texas need an education. But if they are taught the biography of Washington, but not Hidalgo, the exploits of Lincoln, but not Juarez, that child will be indifferent to his heritage. She believed that she would have better luck helping La Raza, Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant people elsewhere. And that's when she decided to join her father and her siblings in human and civil rights activism through journalism. Idar became a reporter for the family's weekly Spanish-language newspaper, La Cronica. She used the pseudonym in order to not be criticized for participating in what was considered to be unladylike critiques of the political culture in Texas at the time. The focus of Jovita's reporting was racism, segregation, poverty, being bilingual, anti-Mexican hate, women, access to democratic institutions. It's like she could have been alive today. My name is Maria Hinojosa, and I'm the anchor and executive producer of Latino USA and of In the Thick. I was the first ever Latina hired at NPR in 1985 in the newsroom. Then I was the first Latina correspondent hired at CNN and at PBS. Right now, I'm one of the few Latinas running a nonprofit independent newsroom in the United States. The number of Latinas in America's newsrooms is still very small. Just over 2% in newspapers, about 4% in radio, and about 8% in television news. So journalism has been one of the slowest institutions to change and diversify and have real inclusion and equity. In the early 20th century, we have essentially the creation of Jaime Crow or Juan Crow. 
which is the Mexican-American equivalent of Jim Crow, signs that stated no Mexicans or dogs allowed were everywhere. Less known is the unfortunate reality that ethnic Mexican men were also lynched. Some people were burned alive, dragged across town. Really horrific ways of killing people, mutilating their bodies to intimidate ethnic Mexican people so that they would not vote, so that they would not complain. In 1911, following the brutal lynching of a 14-year-old boy in Thorndale, Texas, Idar and her family organized a conference that kick-started the modern Mexican-American civil rights movement. The first Mexicanist Congress, El Primer Congreso Mexicanista, lasted several days. And it was basically a human rights Congress that attracted leaders from the United States and Mexico who wanted an end to the discrimination and the lynchings. Shortly after the Congress, Idar founded the League of Mexican Women and became its first president. The organization's main causes were women's suffrage, and quality education for Tejano children. We want our work to be significant, contributing to the formation of character and the cultivation of the minds of future generations. She was in favor of women's rights to vote and to participate in the economy. One of the most significant roles that Jovita had was to invite ethnic Mexican women to participate. At a time when many Mexican-American and Mexican immigrant women would have found it challenging to step into a public role, to be a part of the women's liberation process. The Mexican Revolution began in 1910 and spread to Texas border regions by 1914. La Cronica ceased publication and Idar joined a nursing unit for the Revolutionary Army. La Cruz Blanca, the White Cross founded by her best friend, Leonor Villegas de Magnon. And they're in the middle of battles trying to save men, bandaging up, sending them back into the battlefield, all in the name of bringing democracy to Mexico. When the mutilated bodies of the soldiers were brought to my door, my heart jumped in volcanic upheaval. And from that moment, I felt that the fate and duties of my life had transformed. After her service in the White Cross, Idar returned to journalism, writing for various Spanish-language newspapers and creating her own in 1916, titled Evolución. I bought a press worth more than $1,000 and plenty of type. I can make a seven-column newspaper and will start soon. Her legacy is teaching us to be fearless. Being a Latina journalist in the United States of America means that the way you approach journalism is gonna be different and distinct from other journalists. We actually have played a central role in the narrative of this country. We don't get a lot of play. We're not running the big newspapers of record, but our voices and our perspectives really matter. Jovita Idar handed over the operation of Evolución to her brother Eduardo when she and her husband moved to San Antonio in 1921. There, Idar helped undocumented workers obtain naturalization papers after the Border Patrol was created in 1924. 
She also founded a free nursery school and tutored young children. She died in 1946 at age 60. She used her voice to encourage women to be politically involved within the American system, to be proactive, to join organizations, to seek an education, to craft a better future for their children. And she devoted her entire life to that project. Women recognized their rights, proudly raised their chins, and faced the struggle. The times of humiliation have passed. Women are no longer men's servants, but their equals, their partners. The bad police bad. Woman who created change by her work. Woman who is fearless. Facing down the Ku Klux Klan. Let's see if we can get our orders. in Yemen. How are you yeah. guys doing? Doing really good. Doing oh, great. Okay. Having some healthy debate here. Oh, good. That's always yeah. debate is always healthy. Right. Um, <laughs> I was down there in Hollister. I mean, I was visiting you guys among other people, and I noticed that there's a uh, an issue there that fits right into our th our. Uh, here that greed never sleeps. Can you tell me a little bit about is it Verde? Some project? Strata Verde. Okay, we're talking talking Hollister, San Benito County. Yes. Okay. So can you describe what it is? Well, I'm still learning sort of what it is, but apparently it's like a development company that's from Delaware. And it comes into different areas that are undeveloped and starts buying up land to um, make developments like housing and different things for, like, industries nearby. Like, for example, what's nearby here is Silicon Valley. So from my understanding, that's what it is, sort of. Okay, so they want to provide housing or, or what? For people in Silicon Valley. So basically, it's they're trying to make it like a hub for tech enterprises, and they want to. Their aim, like what they say, is they're trying to get the job growth and e-commerce, research and development, uh, zero emission vehicles. And yeah, it's uh, the, their project was proposed in 2020, and it was defeated then. Um, but it hasn't like it hasn't went away. Yeah, and 60% uh, of the voters rejected it, um, and they plan on a 2,777-acre agricultural property near Highway 25 and 101. That's what should be close to Gilroy um, in Santa Clara. And they, um, they, their thing is they project 5,000 direct jobs when they're done. An average salary of 56,000. Let's see. So there's some safety concerns 
with that, but uh, what I just told you is sort of the mainstream um, explanation of the innards, the dark part of it. Okay, so say I'm a voter there in San Benito County. Uh, say I'm concerned about farmland. I mean, there's still a lot of farmland. Is this something that would use up some of that farmland and transform it into, say, a industrial park or something like that? Um, that's an interesting question. So, but by understanding, like there have what what it would do is yeah, it would buy farmland and create like housing maybe, uh, like the way they do, uh, like. You know, like all those new apartments and stuff that are just like all the same as each other. It would also change like the community, the way the people relate to each other and what kind of people will come out here. And it will disenfranchise people who have lived here for decades, maybe even a century. And it will change a way of life that, you know, has been here forever and grown this area to what it is today. And it's mainly stayed the same, of course, because it's farmland. But, you know. There are environmental concerns. Um, there is the concerns of losing agricultural land to warehouses. Um, oh, okay. So that's why people are against it, or the people in 2020 voted it down. Right. Yes. Definitely. Okay. And, uh, yeah, but we just moved here, so we're, we're sort of learning to... Yeah, we're learning about it. We're okay. learning about it. But Vita and I, before your phone call, I was trying to play devil's advocate. I do want to uh, make sure you get through the questions that you have, actually, before I bring up that point. So, okay, well, go ahead. Those are my questions. You've answered them really well. So what would be some arguments in favor of it? So Vita and I were actually talking, and um, uh, I had a little... A tough start to my day because uh, I missed breakfast, uh, so I started playing the devil's advocate just for the sake of debate. Um, and what I was thinking was, well, and not that you know this it is it is obviously prefaced this with that you know the people that live here are salt of the earth, you know, and they all um, you know work hard. Um, my my thing was. How is how can anybody be surprised when the whole like premise of this country, capitalism and greed, right? So like, there's almost a part of it that like people should have known that this was going to come one day or another, right? And if you do know that, then like, you know what could have been done. I see this as a as a train coming that won't stop it's just going to steamroll and i see hollister as an easy target so right because, yeah go ahead so is it up for um review is there going to be an election in the fall or something i'm not too sure but i wanted to make a counterpoint to yaman's ridiculous point <laughs> basically like there's you know okay i feel like hollister's already somewhat segregated enough like you know i'm sure there's mixes here and there and everybody's cool to an extent but from what i've seen as a latina like people really are segregated somewhat and there's been a community of latinos here that have made this what it is today like they're the pickers they're the ones who stay here and live here and some commute from here also and why is it that money 
is being poured in or any money from some outside company is being brought in to situate new people or new businesses when there are already so many good and proper businesses here that should be invested in or ideas that come from the people that should be invested in as opposed to you know whatever outside like from delaware or whatever their idea for this place why is it not that the ideas for this place that are from the people who are actually from here are being invested in and they have been given resources you know that's it is sad because there are even some groups here that have been misused that are for latinos that have been misused or they're corrupt and so, you know, I think Latinos, which is a large majority of the people here, should have opportunities, should have a say, and we should be against it as long as it's not like that. And we should form a considerable opposition until it's like that. So I don't agree with Strada Verde or whatever they're doing here because, you know, I think it's, you know, 2023. And we already know about the Black Lives Matter movement. So many things like why is it not that commercial interests are towards the community, at least to some extent? Or why do they not have promises towards the community growing the internal part of the community if they want to come in here? You know, then we're just going along with what has been for centuries already when we're all supposed to be about change. And so many companies and big groups have been shamed into investing in the people. So I think they should do the same you know a large part of their whatever investment should go to other things that are in the community because part of the problem is they may build housing developments they may build infrastructure or companies but it'll just create more commuter communities that will then not actually invest in the core community of hollister or san benita harder for everybody else that's been here to live here yeah so it's gentrification essentially is what absolutely is what yeah Oftentimes, what a, a corporation like this, uh, when it comes into an area, they'll offer something to the public, like uh, widening Highway 25, or I remember a similar thing in Pacific, where they wanted to they wanted to create a beautiful big playground next to the industrial park. And they kept bringing it up for election, but the people never bought it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's yeah. it's um, this is our greed never sleeps feature on Labor and Love Radio. And yeah, our right. reporters have been Vita and uh, Yemen. Okay. Yeah. Any last things you want to say? Um, I just want to say like this is this is just a natural progression of what I would like to call the new age American dream, where the American dream is no longer for the person, it's for the corporation. Very good. Well said. Oh, wow. Way to turn around. Profound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk to you later. Thank you for having yeah, us thanks on. Thanks a lot. Okay, Vita. Okay, Yemen. Uh, good to talk to you. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good afternoon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. You Bye. too. Okay, so that was Vita and Yemen, our uh, our um, reporters at large. They've just moved down to Hollister and immediately um, formed opinions about this new project called Strada Verde. And we will 
follow this on the show. Let's talk a little bit about Native American saxophonist named Jim Pepper, Jim Gilbert Pepper II from Salem, Oregon. I'm going to play a little later in our next set if we have time. Well, we'll have some of his work. Pepper was born in 1941, grew up in Portland. pioneer of fusion jazz. His band was the Free Spirits. And he's credited being the first to combine elements of jazz and rock. Primary instrument was the tenor sax. How and Creek Heritage achievement notoriety for his composition combining jazz and Native American Cherry and Courage Pepper to reflect his roots and heritage. He was a musical director for Night of First Americans, a Native American self awareness conference concert. Also played at numerous powwows. Pepper supported the Native American, American Indian movement. Jim Pepper. Um, he recorded with many well-known jazz musicians. Um, anecdotal mention of, well, let's play his music. So it's Jim Pepper. Here's how it goes. Which is trying to give me what? Oh, honey, go roll on a DNA. No, they know. Which is trying to give me what? Oh, honey, go roll on a DNA. They know what? Which is trying to give me what? Oh, honey, go roll on a DNA. They know. Which is trying to give me what? Oh, honey, go roll on a. Oh, honey, go roll on a. Oh, honey, go roll on a.
That was Jim Pepper with Wichitaito, and you can hear the influence of chants from the Native American church and other other inputs. He found a way to blend modern jazz with Native American music. Jim Pepper. Okay. Another Native American musician, Robbie Robertson. just recently passed and um, a few of the facts of his life of course he was one of the driving influences of the band and their string of hits played uh, a couple of them he was a Canadian musician lead guitarist for Bob Dylan Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Some of the songs he wrote were The Wait, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, and Up on Cripple Creek with the band, and had solo hits with Broken Arrow and Somewhere Down the Crazy River. If you want to get a real look at Robbie Robertson and the band, check out the video, The Last Walt. wrote soundtracks for Raging Bull, The King of Comedy, The Wolf of Wall Street, Irishman about James R. Hoffa, and Killers of the Flower Moon. Robbie Robertson. First he was with a band with the Hawks, and then just became the band, figured prominently Documentary, documentary of a tour, written, that was never released. Music video. Okay. Take a little break here. When we come back. Labor History in Two. History in two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1979. 
That was the day that young women workers at the YH Trading Company in Seoul, South Korea, staged a sit-in strike. The women made wigs for export. The company had been one of the leading exporters in the nation. But then the managers began to move the profits from the wig company to a shipping company under the same ownership, as well as to a film production company. This drained the profits from the wig factory and left it in massive debt. The owners shut down the company without warning, firing all of the employees. These women did not only lose their jobs. Water and electricity were turned off at the factory dormitories where the workers lived. A union represented the young women. The union planned a strike at the building, but the police were called in to break it up. The workers decided to move their protest to the local headquarters of the new Democratic Party. The party was in opposition to the leader of Seoul, President Park Chung-hee. The fired women were welcomed at the new Democratic Party headquarters. There, they decided to stage a sit-in to bring attention to their situation. The workers' sit-in only lasted three days. Then, 1,000 police stormed the building. They overturned furniture and broke windows. They dragged the women out of the building violently. One woman, 21-year-old Kim Young-suk, died in the raid. She fell from the roof of the building in a clash with the police. Four of the union leaders were sent to prison. More than 200 of the workers were expelled out of the city of Seoul and sent back home to rural areas. Today's Labor History in Two brought to you in memory of Carol Hillman, a passionate friend of workers and volunteer of the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1850. That was the day that two tailors who were out on strike in New York City were killed in a confrontation with the police. It is thought that they were the first workers to die while participating in a strike in the United States. They certainly would not be the last. The United States has one of the bloodiest labor histories of any industrial nation. It's estimated that at least 700 people have lost their lives to violence during a strike. The vast majority of those slain were workers. Some of the most bloody conflicts included the Great Upheaval of 1877, where across the country 100 workers lost their lives in an uprising of railway labor. Then, in 1892, the strike against Carnegie Steel in Homestead, Pennsylvania, nine strikers and three Pinkerton agents died. Two years later, 30 workers died across the country in a boycott and strike against the Pullman Palace Car Company. One of the most infamous labor massacres occurred in Ludlow, Colorado in 1914. During this coal mining strike, gun thugs hired by the company rained machine gun bullets and fire down on a tent colony of striking workers. At least 19 people were killed. 11 of them were children. In 1937, 10 workers died on Memorial Day at a demonstration against Republic Steel in Chicago. These are just some of the battles, massacres, and murders that shaped the American labor movement. Too often, the toil of this bloodshed is not taught in history classes. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
This day in labor history, the year was 1919. That was the day that the chorus girls of the Ziegfeld Follies formed a union. They called their organization the Chorus Equity Association. The Ziegfeld Follies were the hottest ticket on Broadway during the early 1900s. The show was most famous for their chorus girls in elaborate costumes, bedecked with feathers and sparkles. In 1919, performers on Broadway, as well as Chicago, were standing up for fairer wages and better treatment on the job. The Actors' Equity Association's contract had expired, and the actors demanded a fair contract. The producers banded together into the Producing Managers Association. Actors and producers faced off. The actors held a meeting and decided not to go on stage unless the contract was settled. Membership in the union swelled. Twelve shows in New York alone were canceled. When Florence Ziegfeld, the head of the Ziegfeld Follies, joined the producers group, the chorus girls took this as a bad sign. They decided it was time they, too, joined the union movement. A former chorus girl named Marie Dressler was elected the first union president. The chorus girls joined the striking actors for a march down Broadway. The Ziegfeld performers formally went out on strike and the curtain fell on the folly. Chicago theaters also went dark. In all, 37 productions were shut down in the two cities. Finally, on September 7th, the strike was settled and the Follies returned. In 1955, Chorus Equity merged with the Actors' Equity Association. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1894. That was the day that federal troops pushed Kelly's Industrial Army out of Washington, D.C. and across the Potomac River. The army was a group of unemployed men who had come to the nation's capital to protest government inaction. The country was in the grip of an economic depression. The nation's agricultural regions in the South and Great Plains were also hit by a drought. Times were hard for American workers and families. The call had gone out across the nation for the unemployed to make their way to the doorstep of Congress. The goal was to petition for public infrastructure projects to put people back to work. Businessman Jacob Coxey had organized a march of the unemployed from Ohio. Charles T. Kelly and his group came from California. They rode the rails and made it to Des Moines, Iowa, where they encamped. After a while, the local residents decided the unemployed group had outstayed their welcome. The Iowans provided lumber so the industrial army could build flatboats and be on their way. By the time Charles Kelly and his men made it to D.C., Coxey had already been sentenced to 20 days in jail for trespassing on the Capitol lawn. Yet unemployed men from across the country kept coming into the nation's capital. 1,200 men arrived from different points across the country. One of those in Kelly's group was a young author by the name of Jack London. London wrote of his experience, quote, Across the wild and woolly west, clear from California, General Kelly and his heroes captured trains. But they fell down when they crossed the Missouri and went up against the effete east. The marchers' protests earned no help from Congress. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
Negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Passing by, I see friends shaking hands. 